Welcome to Plodcast. The, well, not just Plodcast. Welcome to the Plodcast. Welcome. This is episode 69. Good to have you with us. Uh, thanks for attending. Thanks for listening. So I want to I want to talk in this episode about what it means to be right-wing, what it means to be left-wing, uh, what it means to be conservative, what it means to be progressive, and what a genuinely Christian alternative to all of these things would consist of. What's the essential what's the essential thing that makes a a proposal or a suggested polity distinctively Christian? So um, we have to understand that the Enlightenment project, the rise of uh, modernity uh, in the aftermath of the Reformation, and the in the modernization of the West and the industrialization of the West, parts of it. Well, I, I, there are so many terms to define. Modernity is not having access to hot and cold running water. Uh, modernity is not uh, having uh, penicillin available or a polio vaccine. That's not modernity. Modernity is an outlook. Modernity is a worldview, uh, and. In that worldview, there is no place for God. So, in 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 secular democracy, in liberal democracies, there's no more place for the God of the Bible than there was under communism. And in this, I'll, I'll probably review this book in a future uh, episode of the podcast. But uh, a book I'm reading, a very good book in this regard, is called "The Demon and Democracy," and he is comparing uh, the uncanny parallels between liberal democracy and communism. Well, God the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins and who ascended into heaven, was given universal dominion, and who sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us. Liberal democracy is just as hostile to that conception of God as communism was. And I would say God and his Christ is the thing that if God and his Christ are absent, are excluded from the, from the system, the most you're going to have is a left-wing, right-wing kind of division with the right-wingers maybe being a little bit more friendly to common sense. So, for example, in fact, that's where the terms uh, come from, a setup very much like that. In the French Revolution, uh, after the revolution, the the legislative assembly had the uh, moderate revolutionaries uh, sat over on the right side and the fire eaters, the, the radical revolutionaries, sat on the left side. And that's where our terms right wing and left wing come from. Right wing of what? Left wing of what? Well, um, if you look at the right wing here, uh, it, it, here meaning in, in the in the French uh, Legislative Assembly after the Revolution, uh, if you look at right-wing, they were right-wing revolutionaries. If you looked at the left-wing, they were left-wing revolutionaries. In every movement that involves more than three people, you're going to have some hardliners and some people who are more moderate in disposition, even if it's just a function of personality. So um, if you say, oh, let's go along, get along, let's, uh, let's not uh, smash up the place, let's, um, let's be reasonable and try to come to compromises with other, 
with people who see it slightly different. If everybody's revolutionary, right wing and left wing are are just simply um, uh, different uh, points of view along one single spectrum. The thing that makes it, the, the thing that gives us a radical uh, Christian outlook is the doctrine, as the New Testament states it, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Lord of whom? Lord of what? Well, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, disciple the nations, teaching them to obey, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So, if we acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ, who is who holds authority from outside the system, he has been given authority from a transcendental place, from the Ancient of Days. If the Ancient of Days gave Jesus authority, and as the recipient of that authority, he has the authority to rule the nations with the rod of iron, then that is not left-wing or right-wing. That's simply Christian. You're, you're saying that Jesus is Lord, and that's the way it is. Now, of course, if Jesus is Lord, you can't say Jesus is Lord, and therefore we will ignore what he says. You have to say Jesus is Lord, and therefore we will do what he says. So you, it would be not possible to say Jesus is Lord, and therefore we're going to institute all these socialist policies. You can't do that because the Bible that that Christ gives us prohibits stealing. All right, the Bible says not to steal. Uh, you can't. You cannot say, well, because Jesus is Lord, we're going to adopt our version of a North Korean dictatorship. No, if Jesus is Lord, you have to accept what the Bible says about the nature of God, the nature of law, the nature of trials, the nature of man, um, and you're going to co- you're going to come out with you're going to come up with something that is very much um, like the Western culture that we inherited after centuries of the development of Christendom. So the lordship of Jesus Christ is not an optional add-on extra. The lordship of Jesus Christ is absolutely foundational. And if Christ is Lord, then it's neither right wing nor left wing. If Christ is Lord, we're conservatives in that we want to conserve everything that the Holy Spirit has done down through history to this point, and we want to progress toward everything the Holy Spirit intends to do in the future. Uh, conservative and progressive are meaningless terms without, a his, without history, without a doctrine of history, and without a doctrine of the last times without a, without an eschatology, you're progressive. Oh, where are we progressing to? Where are we going? You're a conservative. Oh, wh- what is it you're conserving? What? Why? All right, so we're still here plugging away at our podcast episode sixty nine, and our book review section is a. Um, booklet that I'm sure you can find online, and perhaps it's still in print. You can rummage around. I'm sure you can find it. But uh, it's a small small book, small booklet, and it's called The French and American Revolutions Compared. The French and American Revolutions Compared. It was written by a guy named Gentz, last name of Gentz, G-E-N-T-Z, 
and it was translated into English, I think in 1802, by John Quincy Adams, one of our early presidents. So John Quincy Adams uh, read this thing and translated it into English because he thought so highly of it. And in this um, in this small booklet, Gantz shows how the American Revolution and the French Revolution uh, operate were operating on entirely different principles. They were different sorts of events. Too many people think that the American Revolution was the first revolution that set off a whole series of revolutions, and it really wasn't at all. There was a century of revolution, uh, and that that century was bookended. In the latter part of the 1700s, we had the French Revolution, and the early part of the 1900s, you had the Russian Revolution. So the last part of the 18th century and the early part of the 20th century, you have the bookends of the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. And throughout the course of the 19th century, throughout the course of the 1800s, you had a, um, a series of revolutions, the, um, uh, the, the, like the revolution in 1848 in Europe. Um, you had what I would characterize the real American Revolution, which was the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865. So what was it that w- there was a century of, of upheaval And that century of upheaval created a great centralizing impulse. It it gave great aid and comfort to the statists who wanted to aggregate power for the state. Um, In the United States, which was originally a confederation of sovereign states, that, um, that collection of power in the central government happened as a result of the victory of the North over the South. In the, uh, in the American Civil War. So I don't think that the American Revolution was our revolution, but I think that we did have one. Uh, so the French Revolution, the Revolution of 48 um, in, in Europe, uh, the Revolution in America, 1861, and then uh, that, that era of revolutions culminating in the Russian Revolution. Now, what this, uh, what this small booklet does is uh, shows how radically unlike the the American Revolution and the French Revolution were. Um, so let me give you an, uh, just a sort of a quick explanation of how the American War for Independence was fully legal, fully constitutional. When um, in the sixteen hundred in the sixteen hundreds, you had um, the English Civil War, and Oliver Cromwell, who was a military genius, commanded the armies of Parliament, and he defeated the uh, forces of the king, Charles I. Charles I winds up getting executed. He's executed by Cromwell and the the, um, Cromwellian uh, forces. Cromwell rules for a, a few years, after he dies, his son, Richard Cromwell, is not able to hold it together, and you have the Restoration. So Charles I, then the Interregnum, the Lord Protector of Cromwell, then the Restoration of Charles II uh, to the throne. So what what happened, and then it's 
long story short, but Charles II was followed by James. Then James ruled kind of uh, incompetently, and he was deposed uh, in the bloodless revolution or the glorious revolution of 1688. So between the 1640s and the 1680s, England, the, the, the um, populace of England, um, working through parliament and various power, powerful figures, deposed two kings. So executing one of them, and deposing, depo, uh, executing Charles and deposing James. So this means that the balance of power in England is radically altered. So prior to this happening, the king had a lot more power and parliament had less power. After these two revolutions, one bloody, one bloodless, uh, parliament had a whole lot more power. And that makes, that makes perfect sense inside England. At the same time, prior to all this, the colonies were established, and the colonies were established as crown colonies, and their executive was the king, and he would have an executive on site, the royal governor. So um, there'd be a royal representative to represent the executive in the colony, and the king would give Maryland or Virginia or Connecticut or Massachusetts a charter. And when these colonies were chartered, they were, they were given the right to have their own legislative assemblies. They were Englishmen, and so they needed to be represented in a legislative assembly. And those legislative assemblies were local, the House of Burgesses in Virginia and so on. Now, so hit the pause button there, go back to England, where we've had these two revolutions and Parliament is, um, has become Mr. Bossy Pants. So Parliament has, it now outranks the king. When the colonies were established with their charters and their legislative assemblies and the royal governor, they, uh, the king was powerful. Then there's a revolution back home. The king is taken down a few notches. And Parliament looks around and says, we're the, we're the king of the hill now. Hey, I think we'll tax these, these colonies must be ours now. So we'll tax them. And the colonies said, nothing doing. You can't tax us because we have nothing to do with you tax-wise. Because English law said that you couldn't be taxed unless you were no tax. This is what the meaning of the cry, uh, no taxation without representation. If we're not represented in parliament, you can't tax us. Uh, taxes have to be levied by our local legislative uh, bodies. And so... Uh, Parliament said, we're in charge of you. And the colonies say, no, you're not. So it was not an instance where the colonies said something like, yes, we know that you've been in charge of us for 300 years, but we've gotten tired of it and we're going to throw off the yoke now. That's not what happened. What happened was Parliament asserted a control over the colonies that Parliament had never had up to that point. And the colonies said, in effect, and you're not about to have have that power. It's um, let's say, oh, you listener to this podcast. Let's say you're driving down the uh, you're 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 driving down the freeway listening to this, and you're a resident of California. So you live in California, and you're listening to this, and and you get home um, at at the end of your day's drive. You get home at the end of your commute, 
and your wife hands you a tax bill that you just got in the mail from the legislature of South Carolina. So the South Carolina, where you've never been, you've not lived there, you've not driven through there, you've not had anything to do with South Carolina, all of a sudden they mail you a bill saying that you owe them $10. They levy a tax. This is our, um, our tax on Californians. Now, I hope that you would have enough residual pride in your forefathers to round file this tax bill, to just throw it away. Say, no, I'm no, I don't have anything to do with South Carolina. They don't get to tax me. And especially if it was the first time they tried it. Um, if you said, oh, okay, and you wrote a check, uh, if you wrote a check to them because you want to obey the existing authorities, here's the problem. They're the ones disobeying the existing authority. You're the one who's going along with it. So the law-abiding colonials stood by the British Constitution and defended it and finally declared their independence from the king when he refused to help them defend it. So that's, that, that's uh, the explanation of the American Revolution in short form. But it was not a radical revolution the way the French Revolution was at all. And if you want to find out more about that and lots of other cool stuff, The French and American Revolutions Compared by Gentz, translated by John Quincy Adams. So we're at episode 69 in our podcast, and we come to our hermartiology section. The word anathema means cursed or damned. And of course, because God is just, this condemnation does not occur apart from sin. It is the natural and necessary condition that results from sin. When someone is under sin, they are of necessity under condemnation. Those who plotted against Paul's life wickedly placed them, wickedly placed themselves under a great curse, under a great anathema. That's in Acts 23.14, vowing that they would eat nothing until they had killed Paul. It's not surprising that the cursed want to take the language of cursing into their mouths. Perhaps they are trying to get ahead, uh, get ahead of it, get control of it, put some English on it. But no one speaking by the Spirit of God can ever call Jesus cursed. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Paul wished that he could be accursed and separated from Christ, if that might help his brethren the Jews come to salvation. He says that in Romans 9.3. And, of course, his zeal for the gospel of Christ throws every form of anti-Semitic zeal for the gospel into the shade. Uh, if Paul was willing to go to hell for the sake of his brethren, the Jews, um, some, some Gentile with an anti, anti-Semitic streak has no business popping up and saying uh, anything about hating the Jews. Uh, it's just appalling. So, this zeal for the gospel shows that the gospel is the ultimate authority. Paul says that if he, or an angel from heaven, or 16 popes, or the moderator of the General Assembly, or the CEO of the National Association of Evangelicals, shows up and starts preaching another gospel, then let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Another way of putting it would be to say, God damn that guy. The gospel governs the cosmos. And if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then may God damn him. 1 Corinthians 16.22. And that's a good yet one more example of how love in the New Testament is not what so many people assume it to be. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.22 there. If anyone doesn't love Jesus, then God damn him. <laughs> if anyone doesn't love Jesus, then God damn that guy. We might ponder that and say, yikes. Either cursing is not what I thought it was, or love is not what I thought it was, and quite, boss- quite possibly both. Thanks. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too.